Thanksgiving week. Love it. I, uh, I always get reminiscent of Thanksgiving week because when I was a kid growing up in Oakland, California, back in the 50s, we used to drive to my grandparents' home, my dad's parents, in a town called Dinuba, California, which is over near Fresno in the Central Valley where they have grapes and raisins and all that kind of stuff. But we'd get there and my, my grandma would have homemade biscuits with local honey and she would make freezer pineapple ice cream where you crush up, you have crushed pineapple, you mix it with cream. And, so, and, and I just wanted to say that because I was grateful and this is about gratefulness. So my thoughts today are, are entitled Forever Grateful. That's what's on your bulletin. And I'm saying to myself, so what does grateful look like? What does that look like? Well, I think it looks like and sounds like a 3,000-year-old song. There's, a, there's these things called the Psalms in here. That means a song. And um, there was a shepherd boy who became a warrior and a poet king. His name was David, who wrote a number of those Psalms and songs. One of them, and this would be to a Middle Eastern melody. This wouldn't be like Mozart or Sting or any of that kind of music. You know, it wouldn't be any of that. But... Um, so it would have been to that melody. But the 23rd Psalm is, is a favorite psalm for many, many people. And uh, I'd like us to, for starters this morning, I'd like us to read it out loud together. There's something about reading scripture out loud that has benefit. This is the New International Version, so it's a little different than maybe what you, if you were older, what you might be used to. But let's read it together out loud, the 23rd Psalm. It'll be on the screen. And this is how it reads. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I am forever grateful, and I'm going to take the next few minutes to tell you why. Number one, I think, in your bulletin is this little phrase, I'm alive and grateful. Two years ago, on this weekend, I talked about a friend of mine. I think he was brought up in New York City, but went to university at Tufts in Boston, came to Jesus during his time there. His name is Max Finberg, still lives in D.C. and works there. <clears throat> and whenever you said to Max, how are you, Max? He would always say this, I'm alive and I'm grateful. I'm alive and I'm great. Why don't we say that together? Are you ready? Here we go. I'm alive and I'm grateful. It's just a wonderful deal, just a wonderful way to engage people. And I'm thinking about grateful. So what, what's the difference between being grateful and being thankful? Well, grateful is an attitude. Maybe that's why we call it gratitude. I don't know. But grateful is an attitude. It's, a, it's an approach to life. To be thankful is an expression of a grateful heart. It's an action you take as a response to a grateful heart. What's interesting about gratefulness is that it has no downside. 
Almost everything I'm engaged in has some downside. Well, you got this, but then you got you go and get medicine, and they say, well, this will keep the disease away, but there are these 32 other things that could kill you. You know, on the down, not quite. But the but the point is, it's all positive. Studies have shown that gratefulness and attitude actually affect physical symptoms of illness in a positive way. It lowers your blood pressure when you're grateful. It extends your life. I was at a men's retreat in a place called Windy Gap, North Carolina some years ago, several hundred guys, and one of the other speakers was a guy with a wonderful name. He was a professor emeritus of endocrinology at Ohio State University, and his name was Dr. Bill Malarkey. I love that name. I, we Irish people, we love those names. And, uh, but he wasn't malarkey. He, he was a serious dude. And he said, studies show that, there, that gratefulness is the single greatest determinant of healthy aging. Going forward, gratefulness is the thing that affects your life the most. My friend Jim Clock, who's a counselor here at the in, uh, he's, he's a timberliner. He, he said that he journals thankfulness. And sometimes in 12-step programs, they have that as a piece. What am I grateful for? But face it, grateful people are just more fun to be around. Nobody wants to hang out with a grouch, you know? You know, some of you are saying, yeah, well, I'm kind of a grouch. I don't even like hanging out with myself. I, no, no. I'm, but the point is that there's something about gratitude. So when... So when Cameron said, why don't we take time and think about, reflect on what we're thankful for, I want to put some pen to paper here. I started to say pencil, but pen to paper. And uh, it's on the back of your bulletin. It says, I am grateful for, and then three blanks. So we're going to take 20 seconds. And I'd like you, if you're so inclined, just write down three things that you're thankful for, grateful for. And I'll be like Mr. Rogers. I'll just keep the time. We'll do 20 seconds worth. Here we go, starting now. Time's up. Okay, three things. So I'm asking myself, what am I, Dick Foth, grateful for. And I'm grateful for three things. I'm grateful, and again, this is in your, I'm grateful for three things that last forever. Three things that last forever. And those three things are these. My soul, his spirit, and his word. Those three things Go on forever. And his spirit and his word nurture your soul. Okay? And I'll just, I'll explain what that is in the next few moments here. So man is a created, unique being. When you read Genesis, the second chapter, the creation account, this is how it reads in Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man, the human, became a living being. It says that God breathed into him literally the breath of lives. I would submit that's the image-bearing part. In chapter 1, it says, let us make man in our image. I mean, 
God's not breathing into the nostrils of aardvarks or elephants here. He's breathing into the nostrils of, of man, mankind, okay? And you say, well, that's just, that's poetry. That's nice little metaphor. And I'm saying, cool. What's the matter with poetry and metaphor? If it's a fact, if it's, if it's a thing that happened, the, the fact is that, it, that he designed us to infuse us with life in a way that connects with him. That's what makes us unique as human beings. I believe that. But, but when I find out that I bear God's image, I think I get a little heady, right? And I say, well, like I could even be God. Why don't I, why don't I be my own God and fall down and worship me? So I wander off and do whatever I do. And God in his great mercy comes and finds me, hiding behind all my flaws and my successes and my guilts and my ego. And he tags me and says, Foth, you're it. And he redeems me from myself, if you will. And it, it talks about recreation in the New Testament by using language, born again language. Listen to how 1 Peter says it. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 24 through 24. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed. Here's that what lasts forever piece again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and enduring Word of God, through the living and enduring Word of God. All people, now he quotes Isaiah. Peter's quoting Isaiah here. All people are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. There are two words that are used in the Greek language in the New Testament for word. One is logos which means the bedrock, the, the expressed word of God. It talks about Jesus, if you will, in John as the word. But there's another word that's rhema, that is when you're reading this enduring word of God, something comes to light. You may have read a passage 14 times and bang, something gets you. Or you have a conversation with somebody and you walk away and say, boy, that, that really spoke to me. That, that was a moment of light in there that, that, that enhances whatever it is. Both of those words are used in this passage. Both of those words express the enduring word of God that goes on forever. You, you read the Old Testament and you hear the psalmist say, O Lord, your word have I hidden in my heart, so I might not, what? Some of you know, sin against me. I might not wander off again, because I'm a wanderer. But, I, but your word is in my heart, it's your statutes, it's your principles, it's right. It's very interesting. I have a friend, Gordon Fee, who's a, who's a New Testament scholar that says things, things aren't right because they're in the Bible. Because they're right, they're in the Bible. Let me say it again. Things aren't right because they're in the Bible, but because they're right, they're, they would be right if this were never written down. Those ideas, those thoughts, those truths. So his word endures forever. It just keeps coming over and over again. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did a, a week of teaching for a group called Convoy of Hope. We know Convoy of Hope because we partner with them around the world in feeding children. They go to disaster areas and so forth. And they had me come in to speak four or five times. And, and they said, one of those times, we'd like to interview you. And I say, okay, take your chances. And so they interviewed me. And one of the questions, this is a spontaneous question, was... You're older, and if you had your life to do over, what's one thing that you would like to do differently? 
And I said, I just blurted it out. I said, I wish I'd memorized more scripture. That's what I wish. I wish I'd memorized more scripture. Because I know some folks who just, they're loaded with it. And I've got some, but I, I don't know if I'm loaded with it. And, you, you know, when I was a kid, I had like a Velcro brain. You'd say something and it'd stick. Now, more Teflon. Just You say something and I say, where'd that sucker go? I, you know, it was just here just a moment ago. And now it's out there somewhere in the ozone layer. I don't know what happened. Because the Spirit of God works with the Word of God that's in our lives. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews says it in chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. A double-edged sword, unlike a saber, cuts both ways. Okay? It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit. The New Testament does not distinguish a lot of times between soul and spirit. Sometimes they're, they're used as replacement words for each other. So it essentially means the deepest part of me. It means to, to plunge down through intellect, emotion to the deepest part of me, to the joints and marrow. The person writing this, God knew this, but the person writing it didn't know that in the marrow of your bones you're generating stuff. He didn't know that. But the point is that it's the deepest part of the human being. It judges or assesses the thoughts and the attitudes, literally the feelings and the thoughts of the heart. You say, so what is the word of God? Is it this? The written word? Yep. How about the spoken word? Yep. What about Jesus who is the word? Is that the word? Yes, that's the word. The answer to that question is yes, all of the above. That however the truth of God and from him comes to us, it, it, is, it not only lasts forever, but it plunges into the deepest part of us and nurtures us forever. So, the truth goes to the deepest part of my life. So, I'd like to close with this illustration. Some of the kids here are saying, you got to be kidding me. Eight minutes, he's done. This is the best Sunday I've had in a long time. No, no, no. Well, this will be the longest illustration you've ever heard in closing. I'd just like to say that. Some years ago, some months ago, excuse me, when, when I knew that I was going to be speaking this weekend, I called Pastor Derry and said, Derry, 13 years ago, I came as a guest to speak here before Ruth and I moved here 10 years ago. And I told a story about a friend of mine and I want to tell that story again. I, I feel that I should tell the story. And I don't usually ask Pastor Derry for permission about what I do, but this, this was a unique thing. And he said, absolutely, absolutely do that. And so this is the story. Ruth and I were in our early 30s, and we were doing a church plant at the University of Illinois, near the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, south of Chicago, about 135 miles. And I met a friend who was the associate director of a group called Campus Life Youth for Christ, which is like Young Life. They work with high schoolers and local high schools. And Denny's specialty, he was 28 years old at the, at the time of the story, I'm going to tell you. Denny's specialty was recruiting volunteers from University of Illinois students to work with high schoolers on the high school campuses. He had about 70 that he had trained. He had just gotten back from a judges conference where he had been one of the keynote speakers about how to recruit volunteers. He was brilliant. He was urbane. He was witty, sharp guy. And um, 
we had decided we were going to ask him to be campus pastor from our congregation to the University of Illinois. So we had a lunch appointment on a Friday in March 1973, 45 years ago. And um, at 10.30, I get a call saying they've rushed Denny to the hospital. What had happened was he woke that morning and said to his wife, I'm not feeling quite right. Got up, took a shower. He said, my arms feel sort of tingly. He got dressed, was sitting at the dining table holding his five-year-old daughter on his lap. And he called his wife. She stuck her head around the kitchen door just in time to see him go on the floor with convulsions. Denny had suffered what is known as arrhythmic heart failure. Rhythmic heart failure essentially works like this. Your heart sort of has its own electrical system that causes the bottom part of your heart, the heart, to pump like this. If it shorts out, it'll start to fibrillate, quiver like a bowl of jelly. Like that. When that happens, it ceases to pump blood effectively. And when it does that, all of the organs, and particularly your brain, which takes 20% of your blood, because it needs the oxygen to do all the things it's doing, the, it, it, it loses blood, the cortex of the brain, that inch-thick covering inside your skull that controls motor stuff, your memory, the, your capacity to think, and all those sorts of things. And if you're, a young, if you're an older person, your brain cells start dying within two to three seconds two to three minutes, and they don't regenerate. If you're younger, maybe four to five minutes, but it took them 10 to 15 minutes to get Danny to the hospital. It was 45 years ago. By the time they got him there and checked his brain wave, it was like this. It's supposed to be this way, and it was like that. And they said he would never walk or talk, or, but he had brain damage, essentially. Your brain, this three-pound thing inside your cranium, is an unbelievable thing. I mean, I've said this many times. For me to pick up this Bible is 400 separate chemical reactions from my brain to my hand and back like that. Not only can I do that, but I can walk around and I can talk at the same time, which is an unbelievable process from one side of my brain to the other and out in my mouth. And I'm waving my hands and walking around and looking at you and all these kinds of things. My friend, Dr. Bob Homburg, says your brain is comprised of uh, 86 billion atoms. And all kinds of stuff is going on in your brain as you're listening to me. And I say something like, do you feel the pressure of the chair on your back? You hadn't thought about that probably until I just said it, right? But if, if we could take my brain, this would be scary. And if, if we put it up on the screen and you could see the electrical things that were going on in here, millions of things going on in here, it would be like taking a view from 30 miles above the United States and seeing at nighttime and seeing the cities lighted up and you'd have LA and New York and Las Vegas and Branson, Missouri, and it would be Christmas lights or New Year's Eve or 4th of July all wrapped up into one. So much stuff is going on in here, sending messages to organs and glands all the time. Scripture says in Psalm 139 that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Can you say amen to that? It's an unbelievable thing. And Denny, my friend, went from brilliant to brain damaged overnight. He went from 28 years old and sharp and great humor and all of that, and it was just gone. They said he would never walk or talk again. We tried everything. He was in a coma for 30 days. We tried everything. 
we prayed for him. We confessed sin. We did, you know, whatever. He made some stuff up, I guess. I, you know, we're just saying, let's find healing for him. We anointed him with oil, like it says in Scripture, all of that. And one day I stood by his bed as he was in a coma. And you have to understand, he is sharp. And now he's in restraints. He's got food tubes up through his nose. He's, and he, he's rolling around, eyes rolling around on his head like a stunned or wounded animal. And you try to talk to him, it was like shouting into a cave and there was no echo. You weren't getting anything back. And I stood by his bed and this is what I said to God. I said, God, I believe that the soul, the spirit of man dwells in the cortex of the human brain. And when the cortex is damaged, that person is no longer human. That's what I think. I can almost hear God saying, oh boy, both again, here we go. Yeah. And he didn't vaporize me, I'm still here, you know. And I'm hoping other people said worse stuff than I did. But the point is that that day I walked into the elevator of that hospital and the doors closed. I was by myself and I just smashed my fist into the elevator wall and shouted, why? It's the classic question when we don't understand the imponderables, right? Or when we're going through great suffering. I love what C.S. Lewis says. Can a mortal ask questions which God finds unanswerable? Quite easily, I should think. All nonsense questions are unanswerable. How many hours are in a mile? Is yellow square or round? Probably half the questions we ask, half of our great theological problems are like that. Then he was in a coma for 30 days. And they'd say he, he would never talk. And one day I drove into our driveway and Ruth came running out of the house and she had her hair up in curlers. Some of you ladies are old enough to remember the curler days. Big honking things. Looked like you're receiving messages from outer space. And, would, and Ruth and I had an agreement that she would never come outside the house like that because it scares all the dogs in the neighborhood. You're not going to go there. And she ran and pounded on the window and said the hospital called and Denny spoke. I threw the car in reverse, raced to Burnham Hospital, ran up to the second floor and said, did Denny speak? They said, you always talk to somebody in a coma. They said, when we were taking the orange juice tube out of his nose, we just said, Denny, do you want some more orange juice now? And very softly he said, later. And I thought, this is fantastic. And I ran into the room and for 20 minutes I tried to get him to talk and it was just that same thing in restraints. And finally I went over and I closed that heavy hospital door and I walked over. He's a big guy. I grabbed him by the shoulders with all of his tubes and stuff and I just shook him. I said, McNabb, this is Foth. Can you hear me? And he took a deep breath and said, yep. And I thought, man, he's coming back. Well, then he came back a little bit, but he never came all the way back. He never did. I wish I had a better ending to it, but since he goes on forever, his ending isn't yet, right? There won't be an ending in that way. But I learned some stuff about how I think our soul and his spirit and the word work together. He had total amnesia, essentially. He didn't know his wife, didn't know his children, didn't know that his hands were connected to his body. He was like a baby because babies don't know that hands are connected to their body until they get teeth and bite them. They say, whoa. Let's not do that again. But if you, but if you give a, a child, something, a little child, something like this, they stick it in their mouth. They're checking it out. That's exactly what Denny would do if you gave him a pen. And, you know, talk about a Teflon brand. I'd walk in and say, Denny, how are you? He'd say, fine, who are you? I'd say, I'm Dick Foth. I'm your good friend. He said, oh, what's your name? I'd say, I'm Dick Foth. He'd say, ah, have I asked your name yet? I said, yeah, it's Dick. And I just wanted to punch him. 
You know, I, because it makes you crazy, okay? You don't know where the person went. You don't know how to respond to them. And one day I walked in, a speech therapist was holding up a picture of a cup. This was months after this happened. And she said, Denny, what is this? He said, I don't know. She said, it's a cup. He said, what's a cup? He said, you put water in it. What's water? You drink it. What's drink? And I just had this thought. And sometimes you have a thought that turns out to be a leading of the Holy Spirit. And I just said, Denny, do you remember this? And I started quoting John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only unique son. And I stopped. And Denny, who doesn't know his hands are connected to his body, gets this faraway look in his eye and just says that if I believe in him, I won't die anymore. I said, Denny, do you remember this? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he picked it up on key and sang it all the way to the end. And the nurse about passed out. And I started bawling. And I felt like the Lord said, my spirit goes deeper than the cortex of the human brain. That's not a scientific statement. I don't claim it as a scientific statement. All I'm saying is that God can minister to us. When we can't communicate, God can minister to us in the deepest places. I so missed his humor. And one day, some months down the road, I said, we're going to take Denny swimming because he used to be a lifeguard. And a friend and I took him to a swimming pool. We got in there. He said, what is this stuff? I said, it's water. He splashed it on his face. He said, wow, burns your eyes. I said, that's chlorine. He said, what's chlorine? I said, it keeps diseases away. He said, what's disease? I said, forget it. Come on, let's go. <laughs> we're down there. We're dog paddling around in eight or nine feet of water. And I turn around and he is gone. And I'm saying, oh, God, help me. Here we, and about that time, he comes back up, spits out a mouthful of water, looks at me and grins and says, boy, sure can't sit down out here, can you? And I said, thank you, Lord, for that little glimmer, just that little slice of Denny that used to be there. Question is, what do we do when we can't find the person that used to be there? What do we do with that? I have a friend who's going to help me this morning. Cindy Luzinski is a nurse. And as she's coming, I'll introduce her to you. Sometimes people have brain damage in their formation. Sometimes it's through physical trauma or battle or war or going through the windshield of a car. Sometimes it's through aging when the brain atrophies and so forth. And Cindy, who's been a nurse for a bunch of years, she, was, uh, she started out in cardiac ICU stuff. And now for the last number of years, she's been involved very much with dementia care. And why don't you welcome Cindy Luzinski this morning. So Cindy, this is the fourth time I've gotten to hear this. Tell me what's dementia. Okay. The de definition of dementia is cognitive changes severe enough to interfere with everyday life. Changes in cognition which shift the way a person um, experiences the world and responds to it. So you've been engaged with Timberline for at least four years with some stuff called Memory Cafes. Tell right. us quickly. This is not an ad. This is just an ad. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. So Timberline Church has really led the way in helping our community become more dementia-friendly, where our goal is that no one walking the dementia journey has to walk alone. And part of that is Timberline offers a dementia care partner support group that we've done since 2014 and also memory cafes so memory cafes since yeah. you're going to ask tell, tell me that little story okay. just, just that little piece okay so they're places where 
people with early to mid-stage dementia and their care partners come and find out that there's still a lot of joy to be had. Uh, they, they share time together with other people on similar journeys, and it's a safe place. So whether or not words come out very easily or not, it doesn't matter because the group is all in it together. And the whole story? No, okay, just do quick. the first half okay, or so whatever. One of our um, people who was having trouble speaking greeted us and he said, I, I am having trouble getting my, my words out. What do I have, honey? And the wife said, you have dementia. Yes, I have dementia. But I like it here, so it's okay. <laughs> and then he went on, because he was more comfortable, later on to share the story of how he met his wife for the first time in high school and how he looked, saw her across the room, and he thought, whoa. And we all laughed with him, and we asked his wife, did you think that when you saw him for the first time? And her response was, well, no, not really. <laughs> and despite his expressive aphasia, because he was comfortable with us, he's, he quickly said, well, and it's been like that for a long time. <laughs> so it's a very happy place. So give us a couple of truths about dementia. Okay. Uh, the first one is that you are not just what you remember. And especially if any of you are living with cognitive decline, your value doesn't lie in your ability to recall the recent past. Your value lies in whom God says you are. And God says you are a masterpiece. You are created to give him glory. And just as Dick mentioned, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's no caveat in scripture that says, well, unless you've got dementia. Which means, dementia or no dementia, you're still more than a conqueror. You're still deeply loved as a child of God. When you seek the Lord, you will still find him. There's no caveats. So just because... <laughs> just because you lose your mind doesn't mean you lose your soul. We know that there really are ways to connect on a soul level and create meaningful interaction and lifelong well-being for somebody living with dementia. So what, what can we do? What can we do in response as people who are trying to relate to other folks who may not have the memory they once had? What can we do to that? One uh, practical strategy that, for well-being that we share with care partners is to stop using logic. So logic requires the storage of information. And the storage of recent information and access to those facts is typically what's not happening in the mind with dementia. So even though we might be well-intentioned, when we logically or uh, seemingly rightfully contradict or correct or try to convince someone with dementia to adjust to where we think they should be, it just causes frustration all around. So rather than using logic, we talk about using humility. And by that I mean we lay down our right to be right and we humbly choose to be kind instead of right. That's a little bit hard when you are an exhausted, frustrated, lonely care partner. <laughs> I get that. So you, you call this a leap of love. I do, yes. So one way that it helps care partners, certainly if they're in support groups, but also if they can look at um, how God treated us. It, and our God, who doesn't even need the concept of time, he is so far beyond our understanding and yet wanted relationship with us. And he said, you know, I know you can't get to me on your own, so I'm making that leap of love and I'm coming to you. I'm coming into your finite reality to make it easier for you to connect with me. So when we make a leap of love 
by avoiding contradiction or by going along with whatever context our loved ones need in order to make sense of what's happening around them or what they're feeling, that leap of love is so much smaller than the leap of love that God made for us. So when Cindy and I were talking a few days ago, I said to her, does the name Edna Hong mean anything to you? And she said, yeah, why would you ask me that? I said, well, 20 years after Denny, I found this book called Turn Over Any Stone, and Edna Hong is the author, and her husband was a teacher of philosophy at this college called St. Olaf's College, and you said... I went to St. Olaf's College. I had no idea <laughs> she went to St. Olaf's College in Minnesota. That's how you say it, right? Well, there's no apostrophe S, yes. St. Olaf. St. Olaf College, okay. To correct you in public. So be it. That's right. That's right. I need the kindness. A kind. Yes. Sir. Choose to be kind instead of right. Yeah. But she, she and her husband had eight children, 20 grandchildren, 19 great-grandchildren, and one of the, her daughters had a child that, was, that had been brain damaged in birth or before birth. It was born deaf and mute. And, and her struggle, the grandma's struggle, was what's this about? What's the whole suffering thing? And, and so she, she wrote a book. She went on a search. And this, I just want to read you a couple of passages from it very quickly. She asked the question, is being absent in mind synonymous with being absent in spirit? The meaning of life is in the relationship of the whole person to God, not in the relationship of the cerebellum. And then she talks about an older man who was her friend's father and says this about him. When the tenuous tape coiled on the reel of his memory broke and in his patching and repairing he fused incompatible pieces, when others heard the twang of breaking memory and saw the shattered fragments of what was mined and murmured sorrowfully how tragic he was a giant in his day. The Lord God picked up the fumbled, jumbled words, the topsy-turvy alphabet, the whole embarrassing litter, and it was as if they rearranged themselves into a liturgy of praise. And it was so, the Lord God looked, and behold, it was very good. When strangely as he lay in his long dying, numbers became his living language, and he intoned them one by one tirelessly, hour upon hour, day after day, as time tallied its final count for him, when others stood beside his bed and heard his babbling numbers and tiptoed tearfully away, the Lord God, I love this part, the Lord God gathered up the digits and the ciphers, the sum total of his numbers, the whole untidy chaos, and they added up. And their sum was adoration. And it was so. The Lord God looked and behold, it was very good. What are the three words we need to remember? We talked about this this morning, that even if someone doesn't recognize our names or our faces anymore, they will always recognize beauty and kindness and love. And we are the people that get to show that to them. Beauty and kindness and love. Thank you, Cindy Luzinski. Let's thank Cindy for coming. Again. Okay, I'm wrapping this up like I started to 15 minutes ago. The thing I missed about Denny was that he was so able in what he did. He was touching so many lives. And we say, well, now he's damaged. And he just, he was in a nursing center south of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, for a couple of years. And in the spring one year, the authorities called and said there's a tornado on the ground heading toward 
the nursing center, get those people into the hall in a safe place. And so they, they started hurting these older people who had dementia and Alzheimer's and young people who had been in motorcycle accidents and the Denny's and they herding them into this center hall and it was pandemonium. And in the middle of that, Denny, whose soul is very much alive, stood up and said, what we, what we need to do here is pray. And the nurse said, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Denny, go ahead. And he said, dear Jesus, please, you know we can't take care of ourselves. Please don't let this tornado hit us. And that tornado that was three quarters of a mile across on the ground came up within a quarter of a mile of the nursing center, lifted, went across the nursing center, across the highway, sat down in a cornfield and kept going. And there were three nurses in church the next Sunday morning. You say, does, it, does God always do that tornado thing? Well, I don't know, but he did it then. Or the time I told this story at a camp and a young pastor came up and said, I'd like you to meet Sean. And he pulled Sean out and I was looking down into the face of a little Down syndrome boy. And, I, and he just looked at me and said, hello, God bless you, goodbye. And he ran off. He said, let me tell you about Sean. He said, there's a lady in our church who's come for years. Her husband would never come. He came some months back, and in the middle of the message, something upset him, and he stormed out the back door, and Sean was sitting with his mom back in the back, and as he went out, he said, goodbye. God bless you. Come again. He said, two months ago, that man walked back into church, and at the invitation at the end of the service, he stood up, walked down the aisle, gave his life to Jesus. And he said, do you want to know why he came back? And he said, yeah. He said, I would wake up at night and see Sean's face and hear him saying, goodbye, God bless you, come again. And I couldn't stand it. He said, if God can love Sean, maybe he can love me. And he came back. 